Is humility the same thing as humiliation? How does humility help me change? Welcome to episode 208 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Eric, Jonathan, Cecilia, and Michelle. They used the donation button on our website. Thank you, Eric, Jonathan, Cecilia, and Michelle for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we at The Recovery Show may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you'll find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I'm your host today. Joining me is Eric. Welcome, Eric. Good morning, Spencer, and uh, welcome from the Constitution State. (laughs) It being the the day before the uh, 4th of July when we're recording this, yeah. Yeah, Connecticut, also known as the Nutmeg State for some bizarre reason. I wanted to start with a reading and a quote. The reading is from Courage to Change. It's June 9th. When my study of the steps reached step seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings, I stumbled on the very first word. Humble, I thought. The last thing I need is to be more humble. Hadn't I been humble all my life, putting everyone's needs ahead of my own? What had it ever brought me except abuse? But Alanon suggested that perhaps I had confused humility with humiliation. Humility does not mean begging for mercy. Real humility, I discovered, is the ability to see my true relationship to God and to my fellow human beings. The second word wasn't much easier. I had learned not to ask anyone for anything. Alanon showed me that my knowledge and experience are limited. I don't know all the answers, and I don't have to know them. I can ask for help. My concept of the last word has also changed. I used to think of shortcomings as crimes, faults, sins, or mistakes. Now I think of them as blocks that prevent me from reaching my full potential and distance me from my higher power. And Eric, you picked a wonderful quote from Nelson Mandela. Yes, uh, he says, Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You're a child of God. Your playing small doesn't serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It is not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. I felt like those those two readings highlighted different aspects of humility or, or humbleness, but they're both about becoming or recognizing and allowing ourselves to, to be our true selves, I think. Now, I know you always like to start with some definitions. So what did you find? Yeah, you know, the, the obvious, I mean, from Urban Dictionary, modest, having or showing modest or low self-esteem of one's own importance, respectful. A couple of sentences says, an admirable quality that not many people possess. It means that a person may have accomplished a lot, or be a lot, but doesn't feel it necessary to advertise or brag about it. And I wrote here, attraction versus promotion. One of our tenants in yeah. uh, public outreach, yeah. I, I found a definition from Merriam-Webster that 
that I liked about humility, or a definition of humility. It's, it, they define it as freedom from pride or arrogance. That just goes right along there that, with that Urban Dictionary definition of humble about maybe you've done a lot of stuff, but you're not shouting about it or whatever. You're not putting yourself ahead because you did it. Well, I think the, the concept here is to display humility, not to say, you know, hey, I'm the best damn humble person in the world. Prove that to you. <laughs> I, I can out-humble anybody. Yeah. The, the second paragraph under that same um, Urban Dictionary, I think is pretty good, too. And it says, if you were to meet a humble person, he wouldn't be the kind of person who thinks lower of himself than others think he should. Instead, he would not think of himself at all. A humble person isn't interested in saying, I suck, or I'm not great. These statements come from a person who thinks he should be better than he is. A truly humble person isn't concerned with who he or she is or should be. He isn't concerned with himself at all, but instead he's concerned with other people. I thought that was pretty cool. And by the way, uh, Scrabble points on this are 13. 13 Scrabble points, assuming yeah, no, yeah. no double or triple scores. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which dictionary is it that gives you Scrabble points? I, I think it. I, I think it might be Urban Dictionary. Okay. <laughs> I thought we might start our discussion where many of the writings in our literature about Step Seven start, which is the, the difference between humility and humiliation. Uh, and I think that first reading that I read from Courage to Change talks about that. Hadn't I been humble all my life, putting everyone's needs ahead of my own? What had it ever brought me except abuse? And this concept of humility really comes up in in Step 7, right? Because it says, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. I think a lot of us felt when we saw that humbly, it's like, oh, I have to get down on my knees and abase myself. I have to say, I am a horrible person. Please fix me. Our literature suggests that that is not at all what it means. Well, yeah, of course, I think that the paradox between humility and humiliation is obvious, and it's disconcerting, I think, when we first look at it, because a lot of us feel, you know, that we've been abused by this disease for so long. I have a great, great reading here, and I might just pick right now to put it in, because Mm -hmm. um, it really addresses, I, I like looking at what other smart people say about a topic that aren't necessarily bound to our al anon a conference-approved literature, and one of the places I often look is psychology today. You know, because we're dealing with a disease of mind and spirit and emotions. And this is something that is called the paradoxical power of humility, why humility is underrated and misunderstood. And it was posted on January 8th, 2015, by Dr. Carl Albrecht, PhD, in something he calls brain stacks. I like that. Hmm. So he says, I mean, the whole article is so good, I I won't read through the whole thing, but he said, um, you know, practitioners of many spiritual traditions such as Buddhism would say that attaining such a state is a necessary part of the journey towards enlightenment, and that necessary state is humility. And it says one definition of humility is a psychosocial orientation characterized by, one, a sense of emotional autonomy, and two, freedom from the control of the competitive reflex. So what is the competitive reflex? And this goes all through our program. The preconscious visceral impulse to oppose or outdo others or auto-react against perceived threats to one's established self, uh, sense of self, consonant with the premise of what humility is not, as I think of it. It's not letting others push you around. 
It's not being a doormat, a sucker, or letting people walk all over you. It's not constantly sacrificing your interests to those of others and then feeling like a victim or a martyr. And I wrote resentment. It's not avoiding conflict or confrontation, not of your making anyway, for the sake of being nice. I wrote people-pleasing. It's not about hiding your feelings or suppressing your views to avoid alienating others. I wrote stuffing my feelings. Humility is about emotional neutrality. It involves an experience of growth in which you no longer need to put yourself above others, but you don't put yourself below them either. Everyone is your peer, from the most important person to the least. You're just as valuable as every other human being on the planet, no more, no less. It's about behaving and reacting from purposes not emotions. You learn to simply disconnect or deprogram the competitive reflex in situations where it's not productive. And I wrote detachment. So the last sentence, I'll, I'll read my others too. Legendary Gestalt therapist Fritz Perl said, I am I and you are you. I am not in this world to live up to your expectations. And you are not in this world to live up to mine. It's a liberating idea, I believe. Mm. You know, a lot in there, right? A lot in there about our program. I want to unpack yeah. a sentence here, the competitive reflex, because it's got all these like huge words in it. Yeah. The, the pre-conscious visceral impulse to oppose or outdo others. I'm reminded of a reading. I don't remember which book it's in now. There's a reading about how this person visualized all the people and herself as being on a ladder. And so everybody else was either above or below recognizing. And, and I think this is one of the readings that probably shows up. If you look up humility in the index of whichever reader it is, probably courage to change. Yeah. I saw it yesterday. And that learning humility is recognizing that, that there is not this ladder and that there is not this, everybody's above or below. And we have to claw our way up the ladder to get above people in order to succeed in life. Then this competitive reflex, this pre-conscious visceral impulse. So pre-conscious means it happens before you think about it, right? And visceral is like in your gut. So you have this, this unthinking gut instinct to try to climb the ladder, to try to get above people. Because that is the way that we've been taught for, you know, sort of forever. This is how you do it. This is what our society says uh, is, is the way to succeed is to climb up over the people who are, who are in your way. And maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I certainly have, have, have felt that. And this auto react against perceived threat. So again, without thinking, this feels like a threat to my self-worth. This feels like a threat to my sense of identity. This feels like a threat to my finances. I'm going to react without thinking about it. Auto-react against threats that I perceive that may not be real. That, to me, is one of the things that sort of stands up against this notion of humility for us, that when I am truly humble, when I have humility, I don't have to see myself in relationship to other people. I can see myself in relationship to myself and in relationship to my higher power. You know, that's some of what he says here, but in different language. I am I and you are you. I am not in this world to live up to your expectations and you are not in this world to live up to mine. I mean, wow. 
that sounds so programmed to me, right? Yep. Yep. So I have heard, I have read this notion that uh, humility is teachability or openness to learning. Have you heard that statement? Yes, absolutely. And it's if um, we had time, I'd read more of that article because it it absolutely goes to that notion that by not discounting uh, someone else's opinion, by staying open-minded, I mean, almost all of our slogans kind of can be worked into a version or two of being humble. It's uh, asking for help. You know, in my Saturday meeting where, again, it's not a coincidence that when we pick a topic, it seems that it's right on point with some of the meetings this week, or at least that's that's my filter I'm using because I'm Think, thinking about uh, our podcast coming up, asking for help, I wrote all over the place this week, you know, the, the, the humble act of saying, I don't know, or maybe someone else can help me. Just the simple act of asking for help was so contrary to, to a lot of us before we came into program. You know, I thought I could fix it. I thought I could control it. I thought I could master it, outwit it. You know, I now know that I can't do any of those things. I can't change anyone else. Control, you know, the opposite for me of trying to control something is humbly admit that I don't have that much power. I don't have the power to control other people's behavior, just as I don't have the power to control the weather or the traffic or many, many, many other things. The only thing I do truly have control over is my behavior and how I act. And that goes to the fact that when we ask for help, we're humbly asking for guidance and strength and support from something outside of ourselves. You know, it's getting out of our own way. Oh, yeah, absolutely goes to that. Yeah, and I see it as also, and may, I may be rephrasing what you said here, but that in humbly asking, it's one thing, and I'm sure that many of us have had this experience of, saying, oh, man, I really, I need help with this. I hate it that I need help with this. And, and sort of asking resentfully and, and grudgingly accepting whatever help is, is given. And that is not to me what, what humbly asking means, right? It means I recognize that I cannot do this thing alone and I am asking for help and I am open to help and I am ready to receive that help in whatever form it might come. Because another thing that sometimes happens to me is, you know, I'll ask for help for with something and the help that I get is not the help that I wanted. Right. And then I'm resentful that I didn't get, I didn't get what I wanted. I, I still got help. I just didn't get it in exactly the way I wanted. The, the simple notion of asking, you know, humbly ask, you know, I spent this week kind of getting hung up on the word humble. What is humble? The definition of humble. Mm-hmm. Other people that are smart talking about the nobility in the act of being humble and leadership when it comes to humility. It's a surprising notion that many of the greatest leaders uh, possess this huge quality of humility. You know, it's referenced so many places in our literature. And what two of them that I picked out goes to your question is, you know, how does humility help keep me from trying to control people in situations. I pulled out a tradition nine and I kind of like this reading. It's uh, our tradition nine is our groups as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. 
Now, for people that don't really study the tradition, they are going to think, you know, the hell does that have to do with anything? What does that have to do with me? But the more and more I come to the um, to the meeting, go to the step meetings, do the work, the more I see how to use these traditions, concepts, all of this program in all of my affairs. And there's amazing how many great things come out of these notions of traditions, which is, you know, how to conduct ourselves uh, with other people in society. That's kind of what the traditions are. And so the last paragraph from Tradition 9 reads, Tradition 9 encourages simplicity in the structure of our personal lives. We don't need to be overly rigid in defining rules to govern our own behavior and the behavior of others. We attain order and balance in our lives more easily when we let others take responsibility for themselves as we take responsibility for our own actions. Humility and gratitude will keep us from trying to control outcomes. Whilst remaining sensitive to the needs of others, we can continue to focus on our own responsibility and let go and let God. Really good. Yeah. The notion of trusted servant. Is that in that tradition? Uh, no. Okay. It's in one of the traditions. It is. It says it our is. leaders are but trusted servants. And I think this tradition nine about uh, not being organized, but having service boards, committees responsible to those they serve. It, it connects to humility for me in that when you view yourself as a trusted servant in the course of getting done things that need to get done, in the course of providing some measure of leadership, I think leadership is a thing that's distinct from being a leader in that sense. Um, I think in the in the one about trusted servants, they do not govern. I guess that's the word I'm looking for, right? Mm-hmm. That it's possible to, to exhibit leadership without governing, without telling people what to do. I think that when we lead in humility, it really helps the other people in the group to also do their best. It's a, it's a spirit of lifting up rather than a spirit of uh, sort of pushing down, if that makes sense. Yeah, of course. That, that when I lead with humility, I lift up everybody else in the activity. When I lead with pride or arrogance, which to some extent I see as the opposite of humility when I lead with pride or arrogance, I am effectively telling people, well, I'm the one who knows how to do this and you don't. That often is not the most effective way for me, at least, to get things done. And when I lead with humility, getting back to this question of how does it help keep me from trying to control people and situations, I realize, I understand, I know that I don't have all the answers, that I'm not the only person in the room who can who can get things done. If I know that, it's a lot easier for me to let go of that desire to control, I think. In the book, How Al-Anon Works, and I forget exactly which chapter I pulled this from now, uh, I think it might have been the, the Step 7 discussion, there's this statement that says, true humility is based on letting go of self-will and relying instead on the will of our higher power. And that is one of the ways that we see it in this program that, you know, we talked about reaching out, we talked about asking for help, and in particular in that in that step, and in many of the other steps, it's made clear that our role is to understand the will of our higher power and to try to carry that out. And that's evident in as simple a form as the serenity prayer, 
God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And I think that wisdom to know the difference coming from our higher power, however our higher power may speak to us, whether it's through prayer and meditation, whether it's through the wisdom of others in our Elanon group or through literature, understanding that we we don't know all the answers is is really the, the base of that prayer, that I don't always know which is which. When I put myself in a position of humility, I can ask to understand that difference. You know, the words that come up again and again in the quotes, I also tend, uh, like looking through, again, other people's quotes on the subject that we're discussing. And gratitude, it comes up again and again. And this one I like from James Faust. A grateful heart is the beginning of greatness. It is an expression of humility. It's the foundation for the development of such virtues as prayer, faith, courage, contentment, happiness, love, and well-being. Boy, you know, if that's what it's about, I need to find a way to continue to build humility, build humility within myself and my program. I love some of the real simple quotes. This one is from Alice Walker, says, thank you is the best prayer that anyone could say. I say that one a lot. Thank you expresses extreme gratitude, humility, and understanding. Wow, how simple, huh? Yeah. This is another really nice one from Jim Young Kim. No matter how good you think you are as a leader, my goodness, the people around you will have all kinds of ideas for how you can get better. So for me, the most fundamental thing about leadership is to have the humility to continue to get feedback and try to get better. Because your job is to try to help everybody else get better, too. That's progress, not perfection. It totally is. It totally you is. And, and that brings me to a connection that I found in the, the literature that once I saw it, I thought, oh, yeah, that makes total sense. And that is the connection between anonymity as we practice it in the program and humility. And I think that's reflected, reflected pretty well in um, one of the traditions. Twelve. Well, I mean, 12 certainly is the one that, that talks about anonymity, reminding us to place principles above personalities, and that mm-hmm. that is a big part of it. And the other one for me that comes up is Tradition 8, which says Al-Anon 12-step work should remain forever non-professional. By combining that notion of anonymity that we come together in our groups as equals, as as people who are sharing our own experience, strength, and hope, not as people that are sharing our book knowledge, our professional experience, but our own personal experience, and the anonymity of principles over personalities that when when we come together as equals and we don't set ourselves up as experts, it allows us to, I think, learn better from each other how to live with this disease of alcoholism or addiction. If somebody came in and said, well, I'm an addiction therapist and blah, 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 blah. I don't know about you, but my ears might be shutting down. And also from the flip side and not to be, you know, taking somebody else's inventory, but I feel like somebody who does that is also shutting themselves off from gaining the most they can from the group. And so by practicing humility in anonymity, we actually improve our ability to recover. At least that's the way I see that. Yeah, the, uh, the, the one area from Tradition 12 that I highlighted, which is anonymity, is the spiritual foundation of all our traditions. 
ever reminding us to place principles above personalities. On the second page, it says, The spiritual principles underlying the Twelfth Tradition can be applied to any aspect of our lives and are not limited to what we do at our meetings. Anonymity teaches us humility. We're encouraged to act according to our own conscience rather than seeking the praise or attention of others. That, to me, was just so counterintuitive coming into the program, you know. And it really speaks to the idea that it's okay to ask for help. And we're not alone. It's really the two huge things I pull out of that. Yeah. I want to circle back a little bit to the Mandela quote, because there's this idea that I think has been labeled sometimes false humility of putting oneself down, where he says, we ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? And then he says, actually, who are you not to be? Right. That when we look at ourselves in humility, we see all of ourselves. We see the things that we are, and we see the things that we aren't that we also so often have been taught to not put ourselves forward, to not celebrate the things that are good about ourselves. And that was something that I had to really learn in this program. And doing step four, the searching and fearless moral inventory with a a group of people really helped me to see myself in more balance to see my assets to, as, as well as my shortcomings and to be able, I don't know if, if this was your experience, but I know that so often somebody would compliment me for something that I did or something I was wearing or whatever it was, and I would try to minimize it. I think I felt like that that was what I was being humble, right? I was not... I was not putting myself forward, but in fact, it was very much the opposite that when in saying, oh, no, no, it's, you know, it's nothing. Um, I actually was sort of calling attention to it, I think, in a, in a way. Yeah. And in this program, I have learned that when somebody says something nice, the only response that I actually need to make is thank you. Exactly. And leave it at that and to mean it. That was not easy to learn. Those two words, really hard. In that sense, at least in that sense, I see practicing humility as as part of taking care of myself, a part of when I'm not putting myself down, I feel better about myself. I can be you know, a little healthier and a, and a little happier. How about you? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, God, the, the references to humility as the key to success, not only in business, but it's just, it's so kind of counterintuitive. You would think that humility would be something that would not be possessed by great leaders. You know, they are fairly uh, strong-willed and have had clawed and pushed and scraped their way to the top. But the more quotes and the more things I read about it, and and the Mandela quote really sums it up in such beautiful language, is that it's really the key to moving forward in life with a sense of spiritual stability and balance and emotional security and self-worth it sounds opposite you know i should be beating my own drum and declaring my successes and being proud of them and uh making people aware of them but the quiet notion of just demonstrating what it is that you have found 
I heard a great quote by someone, one of the meetings I go to, we're doing the um, inventory, group inventory. The topic was, do you volunteer as a sponsor? Do you sponsor? Do you volunteer as a sponsor? And I thought it was odd that they used the word volunteer as a sponsor, because typically we don't volunteer to sponsor anyone. We, you know, if someone wants to sponsor and they see something, someone that has what they like or want, they go ask them. But what I came further to think about is, we, well, there are ways where we volunteer to sponsor. In some meetings, it's asked if anyone's willing to be a sponsor, please raise your hand, or speak to someone after the meeting about sponsorship, please raise your hand. Some of the others, we, the call sheet has a column that says willing to sponsor, yes or no. Mm-hmm. So in that regard, we are volunteering. Where I heard this phrase that I used in talking about that, you know, our brief uh, group inventory question was on one of the podcasts from the recovery show. And it was the open open talk that was done recently by a woman, uh, maybe three or four episodes ago. Do you remember her name? I don't Probably that would have been Corey. Yeah. She's very fast, rapid fire talker. And obviously is many, many years. She said when someone approached her, I don't know how this ties in. I'll think of it, but she said, and I repeated this at the uh, meeting yesterday, Someone approached her at a meeting to be, you know, and asked, would you be my sponsor? And she said the following, and this stuck to me. She said, okay, well, are you willing to do what I've done for as long as I've done it to get what I have? Mm-hmm. That, that's kind of stunning. You know, that's direct. You know, that, that seems like it would not be a humble thing for her to say, but it's actually the most helpful thing for her to say. I have a quote here, and this is from Rick Patino, the legendary NCAA basketball coach. And in regarding, you know, people that are leaders and successful, it's just odd how many have this quality of humility. And he says, humility is the true key to success. Successful people lose their way at times. They often embrace and overindulge from the fruits of success. Humility halts this arrogance and self-indulging trap. Humble people share the credit and wealth remain focused and hungry to continue the journey of success. To me, that says a whole lot. I think I have an interpretation of how that statement about, are you willing to do what I did for as long as I did it to get what I have? Yeah. That it's about humility in two aspects. One is in her saying it, basically, I feel like she's saying, this is the way that I can sponsor you. Right. I don't have any other way of sponsoring you, but to ask you to do what I did for as long as I did it. Mm-hmm. And it's asking the sponsee to step up their own humility to say, yes, I am willing to learn from you. I'm willing to learn from you the things that you did yeah, because I want the things that you have. So I see that as really expressing humility from from both sides of that relationship in in what could sound like a sort of an arrogant statement on the face of it. Well, are you willing to do what I did to get what I have? And I know she didn't say it in that tone of voice and she didn't say it in that implication, but it it certainly could be could be heard that way if you're not approaching it from a spirit of humility, I think. Right. Yeah, and that's what struck me about it. And the more I thought, the more I did see that. She basically said, here's why it struck me, because I've had many people ask uh, me to sponsor them. And I'm sure many of us have been in the program long and have found recovery and had spiritual awakenings and worked the steps and worked the program 
with diligence have benefited tremendously from the program in our lives, not just in the lives of dealing with our alcoholic relatives or friends, but in, in the, at the grocery store, in traffic, you know, when our picnic gets rained out. I've had to, this was hard for me about a month or two ago, I had to call about six guys that have asked me to sponsor them and back out because I, I would be asked and I wouldn't be called and I, I started feeling resentful. Mm. That, you know, and my sponsors, I think, said it in a way that struck me as it initially a little arrogant, but after thinking about it, actually pretty powerful. He said, you know, I can be your friend or I can be your sponsor, but I can't be both. And, you know, hard to hear that. He didn't say that to me. He said that in my speaking with him about, you know, my feeling like I needed to back out of these relationships where someone was not willing to do the work mm-hmm. you know they maybe just wanted a friend and, and the way i did it was saying you know i i think this is better we stay friends so we can talk whenever you want to call i mean i'll try to get back to you let's talk about whatever it is or let's you know go hang out as a sponsor i know for me what has worked is using that relationship to work this program i can't be both i kind of can't be both and i think that's what she was saying you know if you're serious if you want to work the steps you know, if you want a text buddy or a friend, that's probably not the relationship that a sponsor sponsee would have. And somewhere in there is humility in saying, yes, I want, I, I will do the work. I'm willing and I'm humbling myself by asking for help and realizing that I don't have the answers. Therein lies the humility and, and therein lies the opportunity for growth. That's kind of the way I see it now. Yeah. Absolutely. You got something you want to close with? Sure. There's a couple good ones here, very short ones. This is Thomas Burton said, pride makes us artificial and humility makes us real. Again, coming back to realizing, you know, we are not in control of the universe and nor can we control others. This one's one from someone named Rick Warren. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. I like that. Putting the needs of others ahead of myself and basically demonstrating by my behavior what it is to be kind and caring and merciful and understanding and compassionate. All those words for me hit the uh, topic of humility. And then, of course, my favorite, the last one here from Yogi Berra. It ain't the heat, it's the humility. (laughs) (laughs) Got to think about that one for a minute. It ain't the heat, it's the humility. Yeah. Yeah, if when you come to a fork in the road, pick it up. Yeah, I think he said that too. All right. <laughs> After a short break, we will continue with our lives in recovery, where we talk about how recovery works in our daily lives and in our meetings. Our first musical selection. I always often like to start with a song that sort of exhibits the the dark side or the opposite of what we're talking about, depending on on what the topic is. And this one is by Melissa Etheridge. It, you can listen to it on the website at therecovery.show slash 208. The title of the song is If I Wanted To. This is a song sung by somebody who feels that she can do anything. And she's not shy about telling you about it. And it, she's illustrating some arrogance here, I think. If I wanted to, I could do anything right. I could dance with the devil on a Saturday night. If I wanted to, I could turn matches to gold smoke, drink, swear, and I would never grow old. I wouldn't have to be in love with you if I only wanted to. It's sort of like, well, if I wanted to, I could do all these things. 
maybe I'm not doing them right now, but I could. And that, to me, is sort of the opposite of humility. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery, about what's happening in our meetings and in our lives this week. Eric, how was your week? This week was good. I did my Thursday home group meeting this week, and the topic was the family disease. And, you know, if newcomers don't buy into it as a family disease, then just take a look uh, around and what are we doing in all these meetings? What are all these people doing here? You know, <laughs> the worldwide fellowship of Al-Anon is entirely based on the premise that this is a family disease. Now, that was a great meeting, uh, smaller than usual. I think a lot of people are perhaps away for the holidays. Saturday morning meeting was another great meeting. I already mentioned the inventory question, which was interesting. And the topic there was acceptance and, um, a great uh, topic with respect to humility, you know, humbly admitting we have uh, we need help and accepting the fact that we are not all powerful, accepting that we can't change others. A really good one. Uh, talks of humility in some regards. And then Saturday, my men's group, uh, we always start with the step of the month on the first Saturday of the month. And there we are. Step seven. Humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. That was our topic. I see. Yeah. Yeah. How about that? And magical. Magical how that happens. My Saturday morning meeting was the first meeting of the month, July 1st. So I sat at the step four table where we are slowly working our way through Blueprint for Progress. And one of the questions that we looked at on Saturday was in the Chapter on character traits, which is very long when you're going through it a few questions at a time because it has a whole bunch of pairs of traits and then maybe three or four questions for each. So one of the things that we talked about on Saturday was the character traits of consistent or inconsistent. And the questions there, do I say what I mean and mean what I say? Do I do what I've promised to do? Do I act in the same way in similar situations on different occasions? And I chose to focus on the first two of those questions. Do I say what I mean and mean what I say? And do I do what I've promised to do? Because those are the ones that I've really come to a new way of being around those questions. One of the examples I used for the first one was in this practice of saying thank you for, for things that sometimes in our daily interactions, Somebody will do something and will just say thank you because it's the thing to say. I some time ago thought about this and thought, I, you know, I don't want to just be unconsciously saying thank you because it's the thing to say. If I'm going to say thank you, I want to mean it when I say it. I want to actually be saying it out of gratitude, not saying it out of obligation, maybe is another way to put it. So I made a decision, I think it was a couple of years ago now, that I would only say thank you when I meant it, and I would mean it when I say it. The prime example for me of that is when I get off the bus on the way to work, I noticed that as people stepped out the door, they would say thank you, you know, thank you for delivering me to my destination safely, I think is sort of the, the meaning of saying thank you as you step off the bus. The bus driver's just doing his job. Do I have to thank him for it? Well, if I'm feeling gratitude that yeah, I didn't have to walk in the rain or I didn't have to be late for something because I could take the bus, then yeah, uh, I didn't have to pay for parking because I could take the bus. You know, there's some gratitude there. 
So when I step off the bus and I'm about to say thank you, I just focus very briefly on a little feeling of gratitude for, for what has happened. And it just, it for me, it makes a big difference in how I feel about having said it. It's so simple, and it's not so simple at the same time. Do I do what I've promised to do? This one for me highlights the way in which I used to overcommit. I would say yes to things that I didn't really have the time or the energy or maybe in some cases the ability to do. A few years ago, I said yes to too many things and I ended up not being able to give the time that I felt I needed to give to a youth that I was mentoring at church that year. And I and I felt guilty about it. I felt like I had let this, this kid down in not being there for him in, in the way that I wanted to be there. Not in the way that I thought I was expected to be there, but in the way that I wanted to be there. And, and that from that time, I re- recognized that I need to say no when I can't do something. That again is, it's a hard thing. I want to please people. I want to say yes when they ask me to do things. But if I recognize that I really can't do it, then I have to say no so that I can give the best me, the best that I can do to the things that I have said yes to. So those two questions, those were good questions um, that, that we talked about uh, in our meet- in my meeting on Saturday. And then my Sunday meeting is roughly, it's been termed a barefoot meeting in the sense that there is no set topic that each of the the tables, because in Michigan we do table meetings, each of the tables picks a topic which is very often based on one of the daily readers for, for the day that we're meeting. But we always try to give people the opportunity to raise a topic if they have something that, that they really want to talk about. And yesterday somebody at the table said, can we talk about step five? And so we did. And, and it was a really, it was a, it was really interesting discussion ranging from, wow, I hate this step. I don't want to do it to expression of the power that step five has had to, well, I'm not there yet and I don't completely understand it, but I'm glad that I'm here and listening. So it was a good meeting. And we finished like one minute before time, which is really amazing for that meeting. <laughs> anyway, good meeting thinking about my life in general, I think that that question of do I do what I commit to or do I do what I say I'm going to do is is coming up very strongly for me at work. And the question of humility and of letting go of my desire to control everything because I'm the guy who knows best, right? Quote, unquote. Things are getting really busy. You know, and I don't have the time to be the micromanager that I don't want to be, but that I sometimes try to be. I just don't have the time to do that. And I have to let go of things with one of my teams, which formed about six months ago, including a couple of people who hadn't been working with us in our, in our group before. And we're not used to working the way we were working. I spent a lot of time in the first several months sort of keeping a very close eye on, on how they were working and trying to redirect when, when they were falling back into old habits that don't match the way we work now. I'm having to let go of that. I'm having to let them to say, look, yeah, you guys are doing well now. And I don't feel that, that I need to review everything, even if you think I need to review them. 
Because they're coming to me and saying, do you need to look at this before I before I put it out? I'm like, I, I'm trusting you guys. And I have to trust you guys because I have too much on my plate to not trust you. And sometimes that's hard to do uh, because I feel like, and, and wow, this is so opposite of our humility topic, isn't it? So great that it came up. <laughs> All right. Well, that's me. Um, over the next two weeks, I will be traveling I will be spending a week as a resident advisor at a youth leadership school. I've been driving out to Iowa for this thing. I've done this. I did this about five years ago, and I really enjoyed it, and I got a lot out of it, and I know that the youth who were there got a lot out of it, and I'm hoping that you know, it'll be similar this, this summer. But for at least one week, I will not be able to do the podcast. I'm planning to put up an open talk, and I do get back in the middle of the following weekend. And so I might be able to record one that weekend or I might just be exhausted. So we'll see how that goes. So we might have open talks and or repeat uh, episodes for, for a couple of weeks. Upcoming topics, I'm uh, talking about the three P's of perfection, procrastination and paralysis. I've gotten some great feedback from you all sharing your experience, strength and hope on this and I'd like to encourage you to, to continue to uh, to send in your contributions, whether by voice or by email. And I hope to get to that one shortly after I get back from this trip. You keep putting off that episode. Yeah, I keep procrastinating on it, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I got a couple of people in town that, that I'd like to do it with, and, and uh, they're just really busy. And I think I have to let go of that, that <laughs> desire for perfection. Uh, and and stop being paralyzed and just do it. <laughs> so, so Eric, how can people contribute to uh, the recovery show? How can you share your voice with us or send us feedback? Uh, you can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. Call right now, 734-707-8795. You can also use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. If you prefer not to use your voice, you can send email to feedback at the recovery dot show. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope on your questions uh, about today's topic of humility or any of our upcoming topics. If you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, let us know. Our website, the recovery dot show, has all the information about the show, including notes for each episode. And links to the music and other things we talk about. I will put a link to that Psychology Today article in the show notes at therecovery.show slash 208. I have to say that sometimes those Psychology Today articles disappear off the web after a while. I've had a couple of them go away and I couldn't find them again. So if you're listening to this sometime long after July 3rd, 2017, and you don't find a link to that article, that's probably why. Um, and it's unfortunately not something I can change. Eric, you picked um, a song here. This song I haven't really heard, but I just Googled around the topic, and there's lots and lots of songs on the topic of humility. And This one just, you know, it. Uh, the title is Humble and Kind, and I like the word kind linked with humble, and it's by Tim McGraw. It's, you know, it speaks to me that, you know, I have opportunities every moment of every day to be kind, saying thank you for getting the ride on the bus, someone holding a door, someone allowing me to get in front of them in traffic, 
and I have many opportunities to be kind in turn. So the lyrics here say, hold the door, say please, say thank you. Don't steal, don't cheat, and don't lie. I know you got mountains to climb, but always stay humble and kind. When the dreams you're dreaming come true, uh, come to you. When the work you put in is realized, let yourself feel the pride, but always stay stay humble and kind. Don't expect a free ride from no one. Don't hold a grudge or a chip, and here's why. Bitterness keeps you from flying. Always stay humble and kind. Yeah, yeah, it's a good message. It really is. Yep. got a couple of emails this week. Eric, you want to read the one from Cece? Cece writes uh, about the ACA episode. Hi, Spencer. Thank you so much for what you do. It's a huge blessing. I had to write and say how much your episode on adult children of alcoholics meant to me. I will be honest, I was completely unfamiliar with this group. I had heard the term adult child, but didn't realize there were meetings for this. When I heard Emily talk about the laundry list, I got chills. I identified with nearly all of them. I'm a grandchild of an alcoholic and apparently grew up in more dysfunction than I even realized. This episode really opened my eyes. I've since been reading the big red book of ACA, uh, joined an online group, and just started a 20-week workbook study. Unfortunately, there are only a couple of local meetings near me that don't work with my schedule, but I'm very thankful to have found the online group. So as you can see, uh, that one episode had such a big impact on my life, and in particular, my future and my daughter's futures. They are beginning to show me a reflection of myself that is too much like my mother, and it is not one I like. I feel like I now have the opportunity to equip myself and them with tools and knowledge I have never had before, and honestly didn't even realize how much I needed. I cannot thank you and Emily enough for that episode. Sincerely, Cece. Thank you for writing, Cece. And I just want to say thank you again, Emily, for helping me with that episode, for being my my ACA person in the uh, in that podcast, because so many people have written and said, wow, I never knew this was here, and thank you for doing it. And, you know, I couldn't, I absolutely could not have done that episode alone. I could not have done it by myself because I just don't have that experience. And, and so I'm really grateful to Emily for stepping up. Ben writes, Hi, Spencer. I listen loyal to the show and was moved to drop a line in response to Andy's message in your last episode. I have also seen my spouse, who is my qualifier, develop a close relationship via text with someone of the opposite sex that I felt was distracting her from our relationship. I wanted to share my experience for whatever it's worth. After talking it over with my sponsor and friends in program, I determined the best thing I could do was to let her know it bothered me and why, but not to instruct or advise her to stop. I did figure out what my boundaries are and express those, such as that I didn't want to hear about him and I didn't want her talking to him on the phone while I'm in the house. One of my defects I discovered in my fourth step is that I often get mad in principle about the way things should be, even when in practice they aren't hurting me. And so I had to honestly ask, was this texting relationship hurting me? Was the time she was spending talking to this guy, time she would have spent talking to me, or attention she would have given to me? The answer, realistically, was no. And even if I did want more time or attention, I could ask for that without dictating how she spent her personal time. Everyone has their own boundaries, and if a spouse becoming close to a person of the opposite sex is someone's boundary, then I've learned they should express it and also express how they plan to enforce that boundary if the behavior doesn't change. 
Are you willing to leave your spouse if the relationship doesn't end? In my experience, my spouse becoming closer to another guy was a symptom of deeper issues, some hers and some ours. Her relationship with this other person has waxed and waned in the past year, but I've found that has no direct correlation to how our relationship is doing or how I feel. It's like drinking, something I want to control and think that if it was fixed, I will feel better. We all know how that works. So for me, it's not a boundary I'm enforcing. It's a situation I was uncomfortable with, though I have become less so. But one thing I've learned in program is that my discomfort is not always a good reason to act. Usually, it's a sign I should be focusing on myself and my program and try to obsess less about what someone else is doing. Ben. And wow, thank you, Ben, for sharing that, for being so open and so clear about the boundaries that you've set and the the questions that you asked. I, it's just, you know, is this, is this actually, how is this actually affecting me? Okay, that's, that's an Oh, great question. So thanks for that. Uh, I want to thank Jess who left a review on iTunes titled Lifesaver. I can't express how much this podcast has helped me. Dare I say it's been life-changing. I go to meetings in my town, but there are only three. I use this podcast to help me when I'm feeling out of control, but a meeting isn't available. It pretty quickly brings me back to sanity. Thank you so much for this podcast. I hope you know it, how much it means to myself and many, many others. And Seattle Dog Girl left also a review on iTunes thankful I found this podcast. Such a great way to attend a meeting when my schedule doesn't allow. Thank you for all you've put into the show. I'm grateful for you. And and thank you, Jess and Seattle Dog Girl, for, for those reviews. Uh, they do help people who are looking for the podcast. It doesn't cost you anything to listen to The Recovery Show, but we do have expenses which run about $60 a month. You can help to support us and keep us on the web and in your ear in a couple of ways. We have a donation button on the website where you can support us directly, just like Eric, Jonathan, Cecilia, and Michelle did. We've put together a list of recovery-related books. Click on the books link at the top of the page. If you order one of these books through Amazon through our website, we will receive a small commission. In fact, anything you order from Amazon after clicking on one of the links will help us. It costs you nothing extra. It helps to keep us on the air. Thank you for your support in whatever form you give it, whether it's sharing the podcast with your friends, just directing them to the recovery.show or listening to us. We are here for you. And I just wanted to mention one other thing uh, here. I'm really, really amazed by the link now on the about section uh, on the recovery.show, which says who is listening and where. And if anyone listening hasn't seen that yet, you got to click on it. It's pretty incredible. And thank you for suggesting that, Eric. Well, I was trying to be humble. I don't think people realize there's typically between five and 7,000 downloads. Over 1.2 million times episodes have been downloaded uh, around the world. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. And, and thank you to everybody who's listening. Uh, Eric, you can go if you want now. Uh, okay. Uh, let me think if there's anything else. Our last song selection is Secrets by Mary Lambert, which you can listen to at therecovery.show slash 208. This is a song about really recognizing yourself and accepting yourself for who you are. Some lyrics here. I've got bipolar disorder. My shit's not in order. I'm overweight. I'm always late. I've got too many things to say. I rock mom jeans, cat earrings, extrapolate my feelings. My family is dysfunctional, but we have a good time killing each other. The pre-chorus. Interesting. Pre-chorus says, they tell us from the time we're young to hide the things that we don't like about ourselves inside ourselves. I know I'm not the only one who spent so long attempting to be someone else while I'm over it. 
I don't care if the world knows what my secrets are. I don't care if the world knows what my secrets are. I see this as, as an expression of humility and acceptance. Thank you for listening and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace growing you one day at a time.